the Jewish people suffered much, too much. And therefore, peace to us is a striving coming innermost from our heart and soul. It's hard to know how to begin talking about Menachem Begin. That was him in 1979, talking about the Jewish desire for peace. He defies any straightforward explanations. He was a short man, but an undisputed giant of Israeli history. Seems like he was 100 years old by the time he reached 30. An intellectual who was also one of Zionism's fiercest fighters. He had the wisdom of an ancient Jewish prophet and the fanaticism of a modern-day terrorist. He was uncompromising in his principles, but he had a good reason to be. An Ashkenazi Jew of European birth, he led a political revolution for Mizrahi Jews of Middle Eastern background. He was the only Holocaust survivor to serve as prime minister. A religious Jew, he led a secular nation. He has a lot of blood on his hands, but he also made peace with Egypt. Israel would never have been established without him, but with him, it almost didn't happen. When you don't know where to start, they say, start at the beginning. Except he had a lot of those as well. I really don't know how I'm going to cram Begin's stories into short episodes, but I'll try. He makes me really uncomfortable, but I also, many times, really admire him. His fanaticism disturbs me, but I find it hard to disagree. When he is morally outraged, so am I. If Ben-Gurion is the most famous Israeli, and Moshe Dayan with his black eye patch is the most recognizable, and Yitzhak Rabin the most tragic, then Menachem Begin is by far the most interesting. It's probably not even close. I don't know if I'm going to tell his story right for however many more episodes of this podcast there are, but I'll probably have fun with the challenge. So, we meet him in the midst of World War II, when he arrives in Palestine, takes over the Irgun, and declares war against the British. He's a complicated man in a complicated time, who yet sees things very clearly. Jewish lives are in grave peril, and we have to fight for them. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people, do everyone our share to redeem the world. As always, I like to tease the ending and then make you go back and listen to the whole story of how we got there. Before Menachem Begin arrived to take over the Irgun, the organization had already split. So just to recap, during World War II, we've got three major Jewish defense organizations in Palestine. We've got the Haganah, the umbrella defense organization that's associated with the left, with labor Zionism, and it's under the auspices of the Jewish Agency, which is headed by David Ben-Gurion. And as part of the Haganah, we've got the Palmach, the elite special forces soldiers, also associated with the left. And on the right wing, under the revisionist Zionist movement, is the Irgun. None of these organizations are very large. The Haganah had several thousand members, the Palmach a couple hundred, the Irgun probably a thousand or less. Thousands more Jews were fighting in the British army all over the theater of war, but they weren't necessarily associated with any of these Palestinian Jewish defense groups. So that's our three. But a fourth defense group also emerged at the beginning of World War II, a breakaway faction from the Irgun. When the Irgun announced that it would suspend operations against the British in order to fight on their side against Germany, some members of the Irgun objected on the grounds that the British were still the enemy. This splinter faction formed in 1940 under the leadership of an Irgun leader named Avraham Stern, age 33, from Poland. 
Now, he had a pretty similar viewpoint as most of the rest of the Zionist leaders in both the Haganah and the Irgun. Jews were dying in colossal numbers in Europe. Only by bringing them to Palestine could their lives be saved. But the British White Paper of 1939 made that impossible. So Jewish immigration and land purchases were the most important thing, and that made Britain the enemy of the Zionists. But that's where he broke off. The Yishuv was following Ben-Gurion's playbook to fight Hitler as if the White Paper didn't exist, and to fight the White Paper as if Hitler didn't exist. But they suspended operations against the British when the war started, not wanting to harm the effort against Germany. Avraham Stern rejected all that. He only wanted to fight Britain. In fact, he thought Britain was the far worse enemy to the Jews than Hitler. Stern thought that Hitler really just wanted to get the Jews out of Europe, that he would be fine shipping them off to Palestine. It was the British who were preventing that, and therefore responsible for Jewish suffering. Yeah, maybe that Hitler was persecuting the Jews, but it was Britain that betrayed them in tearing up the Balfour Declaration of 1917 in favor of the White Paper. Stern admired the fascist regimes of Hitler and Mussolini, though he didn't like Hitler himself. Stern envisioned something similar for the future Jewish state. Not any kind of democracy like what the Zionist movement was going for, but rather a totalitarian kingdom of Israel like in ancient times. He really saw himself as a romantic religious warrior, a kind of messiah figure, who through acts of terrorism would galvanize Jews around the world to take up armed struggle against the British. A revolutionary war of liberation, the only true voice of the Jewish people in Palestine. The author Bruce Hoffman writes that Stern's chief innovation was something that we would recognize today in the likes of Al-Qaeda and just about every Hollywood movie, the terrorist cell network. Rather than a top-down organization like the Haganah and the Irgun, Stern's group was loose and non-hierarchical, with individual cells able to develop their own plans, but still with some central planning and strict discipline. This strategy, along with his incredible charisma, made Stern much admired by his followers who thought of him as a man of great dignity, erudition, and fighting spirit. The Irgun, on the other hand, said that he led a useless existence. Ouch. When he split off from the Irgun, he brought with him about 50 followers. The British called them the Stern Gang. But Stern had another name for his group. Lohamai Herut Yisrael, which means Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. In Hebrew, the acronym is Lehi. I don't need to call them terrorists. They were more than happy to use that term for themselves. That's the Lehi anthem, Hayalim Almonim, Anonymous Soldiers which Avraham Stern wrote and was shared with the Irgun. Above all the ideology, at the root, Avraham Stern and the Lehi saw Britain as a foreign occupying power of what should be the Jewish state. And in that viewpoint was the justification for any and all acts of violence, which they insisted was not prohibited by Jewish ethics and tradition. Terrorism, said the Lehi, served a crucial political purpose. Speaking in a clear voice to the whole world, as well as to our wretched brethren outside this land, it proclaims our war against the occupier. In language that, again, is familiar to all of us when it comes to terrorism, the Lehi insisted that their terrorism was justified because they were fighting the real terrorist, Britain. And that anyway, there was no moral difference between their acts of terrorism and a regular army dropping bombs on a city. 
Stern even reached out a couple of times to Germany, offering to support the Nazis in the war if they would recognize a Jewish state in Palestine and allow unlimited Jewish immigration. This is how nuts this guy was. But of course, to run an effective terrorist organization, you need money, and the Lehi didn't have any. So they started robbing banks and shaking down rich Jews through kidnappings and extortion schemes. Lots of their members got arrested. The British were hunting down the rest, and by 1942, the group had pretty much fallen apart. None of their aspirational terrorist attacks ever amounted to much. They tried targeting British police and other government officials with bombings and assassinations. They managed to kill a few British, but as often, they ended up failing, or accidentally killing innocent Jewish bystanders instead of their intended British targets. This didn't do much for their image. Everyone in the Yishuv, from the Haganah to the Irgun, hated Stern and his gang. The Haganah even helped the British make arrests. Stern was, of course, in hiding, but on February 12, 1942, the British police found him in an apartment in Tel Aviv. No one really knows exactly what happened next. In a bedroom of the apartment, the police said that Stern tried to make a break for it, or maybe tried to attack them. Either way, three cops shot him dead. The Jewish community always maintained that he was simply executed in cold blood. In the end, Avraham Stern wasn't much of a terrorist. A dreamer and a zealot for sure, but basically incompetent as any kind of fighter. Yet he still today is memorialized by the right wing in Israel, seen as an early Israeli hero. Because like all would-be revolutionaries, his real impact was in inspiring his followers because of what he represented, not what he did or didn't do. Like any other revolutionary movement, the Lehi gave them meaning when they felt helpless. Stern's ideology in the Lehi organization provided an outlet for young Jews infuriated with the British over the desperate situation of the Jews in Europe and wanting to do something dramatic and immediate to save them. That he was gunned down by his enemy in opaque circumstances made him a martyr and absolved him of the heinous crimes that Lehi would commit in the future. Because after his death, the Stern gang didn't fall apart, but regrouped under new leadership and carried out some of the most infamous and impactful terrorist attacks in the history of this era. But their direct rivals, the Irgun, were also rebuilding their organization under a new, fierce, and charismatic leader, Menachem Begin. Obstacles and enemies, whether you go up or down, in the flames of revolt, carry the flame to kindle. Never mind, for silence is filth, worthless is blood and soul, for the sake of the hidden glory, to die or conquer the hill. This is the anthem of the Zionist youth movement in which Menachem Begin was raised. Begin later said that he remembered two things from his childhood in Poland, Jews being persecuted and the courage of the Jews. Let's keep that in mind, because everything he's going to do for the rest of his life, in the Irgun and in Israeli politics, will come back to this memory. It shaped him in ways that similar memories in Odessa had shaped his hero, Vladimir Jabotinsky. Begin was born in Poland in 1913, and this early experience of anti-Semitism and Jewish self-defense naturally attracted him to revisionist Zionism, the aggressive, militant, 
right-wing side of the Zionist movement. He rose to the ranks under the influence of Jabotinsky, whom Begin referred to as Rabbi Imori, my master and mentor. He saw in Jabotinsky a combination of steely nerve, political know-how, and the determination to fight for Jewish liberation in Palestine. By the 1930s, Begin was the revisionist Zionist leader in Poland, which coincided with his increasing dislike of the British for appeasing Arab violence in the Middle East. In 1938, Begin had a famous break with his master and mentor. At a conference in Warsaw, Begin criticized Jabotinsky's approach towards the British. Jabotinsky thought that they could be swayed by public opinion to support Zionism and rescind the White Paper. Begin thought this was nonsense, that the only path forward was to use force against the British to break the immigration blockade. Jabotinsky said that the issue wasn't yet strong enough to win an armed revolt against the British, and Begin replied that victory would be assured by the Jews' moral strength. Jabotinsky called his protege's speech a creaky door, aggravating noise that serves no purpose. I mean, that had to hurt. But Begin belonged to that generation I talked about a few episodes ago. The generation of revisionist Zionists who grew up in Poland and its neighbors, and who didn't have the kind of cosmopolitan experiences that Jabotinsky did, and which attracted him to liberalism and democratic ideals. Begin and his generation grew up with unrelenting anti-Semitism, and were attracted only to the ideas of Jewish self-defense, not much interested in things like civil and minority rights, which, as Jews, they never enjoyed. Jabotinsky died suddenly in 1940, but Begin had his own problems. Soon after Germany invaded Poland in September 1st, 1939, Begin was arrested by the Soviet secret police, thrown in prison, interrogated, and tortured. In the summer of 1941, he was shipped off to a labor camp in northern Russia, sentenced to eight years, where he faced further suffering from the ordeal of the Soviet gulag. But he had made a name for himself amongst his fellow prisoners as an openly proud Jew, unafraid to proclaim his faith in Zionism. While he was on the prisoner ship to the Gulag, Nazi Germany invaded Russia. And so after only a couple months in the labor camp, Begin was freed so that he could join the Polish army as an officer, training under the Soviets. His unit, which consisted of several thousand Jews, was soon ordered to the Middle East. Upon arrival in Palestine, most of the Jews left the Polish army for the British army, or to stay on in the Yeshuv. Begin actually stayed in the Polish army for a while, but eventually obtained permission to leave, and by the end of 1942, found his way into the ranks of the Irgun. It was around then that the defining experience of his life occurred. It's a familiar story for Holocaust survivors, but one no less appalling, traumatizing, and life-changing for the individual. When he left Poland after the German invasion, he said goodbye to his family and never saw most of them again. At the same time that he was on the ship for the Gulag, the Nazis rounded up all the Jews in his hometown. His mother, brother, and sister were sent to concentration camps. His father was murdered right then and there. His brother and mother were later also murdered. Only he and his sister survived the Holocaust. As you can imagine, this tragedy, so common to the Jewish people but so singular to the individual, had a profound impact on his worldview. He maintained an obsession for the rest of his life with preventing a second Holocaust. In 1981, he famously articulated six principal lessons that he took from the Holocaust. I won't drop them all on you now, 
I'll dole them out at various stages of his career, but two of them seem particularly relevant to this moment in the mid-1940s. A Jew must learn to defend himself, he said. He must forever be prepared for whenever threat looms. Another of his principles was to stand united in the face of the enemy. We Jews love life, for life is holy, but there are things in life more precious than life itself. There are times where one must risk life for the sake of rescuing the lives of others, and when the few risk their own lives for the sake of the many, then they too stand the chance of saving themselves. See, I told you I find his morality compelling. But as he took on leadership roles in the Irgun throughout 1943, he became increasingly agitated with the British, and increasingly skeptical of the Irgun's decision not to fight against them in Palestine. Like Avraham Stern and the Lehi, Begin believed that the white paper could only be fought by force, and that in upholding its prohibition on immigration, Britain was directly threatening the lives of millions of Jews in Europe. To fight against the British, then, was a fight for Jewish self-defense. So he rejected the idea that the British were good faith actors who would help the issue once the war was over. That's what birthday buddy Chaim Weizmann tended to think. And Begin also didn't like the approach of Ben-Gurion and the Haggadah, who were trying to help the British win the war while only lightly fighting the white paper back in Palestine. But at the same time, Begin hated the Stern Gang, the Lehi, who he thought were cruel and immoral, though he was later willing to work with them occasionally. Where Begin differed was this. The Lehi saw the British as a monolithic enemy. If you were British, you were the enemy. And the Lehi's strategy was to relentlessly attack the enemy wherever and whenever. The war in Europe be damned. But Begin had a narrower viewpoint. He didn't think the British were the enemy. He thought the British mandate specifically was the enemy. And he didn't want to screw up the war effort either. And he knew that the Yishuv didn't have the fighting strength to defeat the British mandate, since he only commanded a few hundred fighters. According to the historian Bruce Hoffman, they had between them about four machine guns, 60 pistols, 150 grenades, and 800 pounds in hard cash. So throughout 1943, Begin developed a different kind of strategy than open warfare. His goal was simple. Use guerrilla tactics only against the British Mandate government in Palestine. Make them look incompetent, like they can't manage their own security. Make them spend a gazillion dollars defending themselves. Embarrass them so much that it erodes their authority. In response, no doubt the British would resort to ever more harsh efforts to protect themselves by punishing the Jews. But in doing so, the thinking went, the British would look terrible in the court of public opinion, repressing the Jews of Palestine while the Nazis were murdering them by the millions in Europe. Every time the Irgun attacked, the British would turn the screws tighter, the world would protest even more, and eventually, the British would break. Make the world come to the conclusion that if the British mandate can't handle a few Jewish resistance fighters, maybe they should just up and leave Palestine altogether. So Begin therefore rejected the terrorism of Lehi with its high death count. Crucial for him was preserving the Jews' moral authority. He wanted to stage dramatic attacks that would bring worldwide attention to the desperate situation of the Jews, but he didn't want the backlash that would come if they started killing lots of people. After three years of restraint against the British, they hadn't budged on disavowing the white paper. Begin asked rhetorically, what use was there in writing memoranda? What value in speeches? There are times where everything in you cries out. Your very self-respect as a human being lies in your resistance to evil. We fight, 
Therefore, we are. On December 1st, 1943, Begin assumed command of the Irgun. And on February 1st, 1944, the Irgun secretly printed flyers announcing the resumption of its revolt against the British. The British, they said, continued to work towards their goal of the eradication of Zionist efforts to achieve statehood. Let us fearlessly draw the proper conclusions. There could be no longer an armistice between the Jewish nation and its youth and a British administration in the land of Israel, which has been delivering our brethren to Hitler. Our nation is at war with this regime, and it is a fight to the finish. Soon afterwards, the Irgun bombed the physical manifestation of the white paper. The British mandates immigration department offices in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa. This was the place where the Jews of Europe were denied immigration to Palestine to save their lives. The Irgun bombed the buildings nearly simultaneously and late at night to avoid harming anyone as much as possible. No one was killed in the attack, nor again a couple weeks later when the Irgun bombed the British Mandate's taxation office. Begin's war against the British was up and running, and he wouldn't stop until he got a Jewish state. Although Begin and his Irgun and the Lehi had now declared open war against the British, thousands of other Jews from Palestine continued to fight for or with the British army. And the British had a use for them. Here in Palestine, he had all these Jews from just about every country in Europe, meaning that they spoke those languages, knew that geography, knew how to get around the culture, and often still had family under the Nazi threat. They were the perfect infiltrators. It was incredibly dangerous, but a few dozen enormously brave people stepped forward. 1944 produced some of the most courageous and tragic Zionist heroes of Israeli history. That's next time. It's a powerful story. Nehitraot. See you later.